Welcome to Wild Secrets, brought to you by Wild Talk, Australia's only free counselling service for people working and volunteering with native wildlife. Wild Talk is a registered charity, so all donations are tax deductible. See our website for details. In these episodes, we share ups and downs of working with wildlife, acknowledging while extremely rewarding can bring heartache. There may be tears, laughter, swears, and just a smidgen of learning. I'm your host, Francis Carlton. Welcome to Wild Secrets. I am Francis Carlton, your host. This podcast is brought to you by wildtalk.org.au, supporting the mental health of wildlife workers and volunteers. Today, my guest is Rob Ashworth. He is a master's student based down in Melbourne, and he's been working on his thesis on red rump parrots, specifically in urban spaces and the importance of urban spaces for conservation of a huge variety of different birds, mammals and insects. And we talk today about the importance of hollows in trees. Welcome, Rob. Hi, Francis. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So we're going to, I'm going to be completely honest. This is our second attempt after a failure earlier on today. <laughs> it was eventful. <laughs> it was, a, it was sort of just generally eventful days, but thank you so much for coming back and, you know, doing this again uh, later in the day. Thank you so much. My pleasure. <laughs> so you've just finished or you're currently studying red rump parrots. So I have just submitted my master's thesis. I'm a, you know, I'm a master of environment student at the university. University of Melbourne. So I still have a little bit to go for my master's, but I've just submitted my my thesis research. And I was investigating how different habitat characteristics in urban urban parks and green spaces impact the habitat suitability um, for red rump parrots. So basically how looking at how our cities can be good for a species that although is not threatened um, is generally assumed to perform poorly in an urban space. Um, How can we best structure and manage our cities to make the habitat a little bit more, a little bit better to support the species that we don't typically see? Mm. So you're based in Melbourne. I'm based in Canberra. The other day, a couple of weeks ago, I was out the back of the building that Wild Talk is based in. Mm -hmm. And I was walking through a little field that's out there and suddenly this enormous flock of birds, probably about 20 or so birds, mm-hmm. all flew up out out of the grass and I got really excited because I thought they were swift parrots. And <laughs> I, because, I, you know, I'd been speaking to somebody about swifts and I was oh, my mm. God, I've seen swifts, it's amazing. <laughs> and I took, I took some very poor photographs of them and I posted them on my social media and then I had people going, oh, no, they're not swifts, they're red rumps. <laughs> so... What's the difference between a red rump and a swift? Because I really couldn't see the difference. In your defence, they are roughly the same sort of size. And I'm going to be honest, I've never seen a swift parrot in person myself. Um, The big one that people usually confuse with swift parrots is actually musk lorikeets. But um, for your listeners who might not be as familiar with red rumps, um, they're basically, you know, roughly the size of a cockatiel. Um, And 
They're what we would call a dichromatic species. So that's a species of animal that where the sexes um, have different colours. So in the case of the red rump parrot, like most birds, it's the males that are all bright and colourful and pretty. Um, mm. And they'll have this lovely bluey-green body and head, and they'll have a yellow uh, a yellow belly, and they've got this this bright red patch on their rump, which is where they get the name. Mm. The females, on the other hand, are much duller, more of an olive green. Um, they'll sometimes have a, a light, pale yellow belly, but they basically never have have that red rump. It's just that pale, uh, that mm. sorry, that dull olive green. Um, the one of the other bigger differences is the is the way that they feed. So most of your lorikeets, including uh, and your swift parrots, um, they're going to be feeding in feeding in the treetops um, on gum blossoms or flower blossoms after that nectar. Red mm. rumps, on the other hand, are seed eaters or granivorous. So you'll mm. find them um, feeding on the ground, uh, camouflage. They usually camouflage in amongst the grass uh, mm. and pretty much until something has disturbed them, mm. um, which is where uh, you would have seen that flock rising up, and normally yeah, I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea they were there. It was just, yeah. it was just yeah. this great, beautiful green, beautiful green field. It's always green out there, and then suddenly there was just animals, birds flying out, yeah. of the, out of the grass, and the and grass wasn't a, even that long either. Mm. It doesn't need to be. That's the funny thing. Like that's a pretty yeah. typical red rump parrot experience. I don't want. <laughs> I don't want to admit. <laughs> How many times as a trained ecologist researching these birds, I have, I've only found the ones in the field out of sheer luck. I, I think there was one particular time where I was, I had my binoculars out and I was scanning for them. And the only reason I found them, and mind you, they were roughly 10 meters in front of me, is because I happened to pass directly over them with my binoculars and there was probably a group of eight of them it's they're really good at camouflaging yeah. um and you've got to be as if you're feeding on the ground as a bird you've got to be pretty good at camouflaging if you're going to be that small because you're really yeah. really vulnerable to to predators yeah. um so yeah they they're they're very good at hiding and then once they've once they've been found, they'll fly up and they'll usually be calling and they'll take, um, they'll, they'll go for safety in amongst the treetops. They got very loud once they, so they landed on, they landed on the fence um, yep. and then they were all chattering to each other. And then because I wanted to get a really bad photograph of them, because I only had my phone with me, mm -hmm. um, I could try to get a little bit closer. And then they were like, no, we're out of here. And they, went in, <laughs> and they went into the trees and then I, I, I really couldn't see them. I managed to find two. Yep. But the, by that point, they were so high that there's, yeah. uh, there's the really grainy. Actually, it's funny because we're recording this on the first of the first of uh, Friday, the first of July. Um, today's five of Friday photograph is one of the one of the parrots that I took a photograph of today on the on the on the <laughs> Facebook page, and you can see it, and it's a it's a really dodgy photograph. Oh, <laughs> if it makes you feel better, I've only got a, a phone camera as well, and I <laughs> I've tried my best, and it just never. Does it justice? Yeah, <laughs> I've sure. I've I've tried many times in my life to be a twitcher, mm. and I've never successfully been able to photograph photograph birds well in the world because of the the backlight. Mm. I can photograph a concert like like nothing else. Yeah. Like I've got that nailed with the red light and everything, but daylight terrible, and binoculars I've never managed to be able to get them in focus. 
It takes some practice. It takes exactly. some practice. You, you get good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've, 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 yeah, I've always been a. Even when I lived in the UK, I was very much a. Uh, you go going out and sort of going for walks and looking mm. for bird life and stuff like that. So, but how did you get into studying these birds for your master's thesis? So I've, I've always loved birds, but I think. The, the starting point for this research project was actually not red rumps at all. Um, it was actually tree hollows where we really kicked things off. Um, okay. So tree hollows in Australia, or well, tree hollows in general, no matter mm. where you are in the world, are a mm. really, really important resource for wildlife. Yes. Um, particularly a lot of mammals and birds, um, they, they use pretty heavily for, for nesting and for shelter. Um, mm. And for a lot of species, they can't actually breed unless there are suitable tree hollows. And some species can be really, really particular with the sorts of tree hollows that they will use. Now, in places in the Northern Hemisphere, you have things like woodpeckers, that will actually be excavate the tree hollows themselves, um, and they can be beneficial for all the all of the other hollow using species in that area. But Australia doesn't actually have any of those mm. hollow excavators. So, mm. for hollow formation to happen in Australia, it takes a really really long time. So, for most for most eucalyptus trees or most gum trees, um, depending on the climate and the species of tree, you're looking at around 120 to 150 years before a hollow, uh, before the tree actually gets to a, a size and an age where it can support a hollow that's large enough for wildlife. Wow. So it takes this massive, massive amount of time to actually produce this hollow. And when you've lost them, mm. it takes that much time again for it to um, be returned to the landscape. Now, mm. this so just is, so just planting a whole bunch of trees isn't isn't taking care of the hollow issue, is it? Not in the short term. No, yeah. that's an example of what we'd call a lag time in mm. um, in in the restoration um, goal. Essentially, mm. like yes, the action is really important, and it's still really important to mm. to do restoration plantings. But um, if the goal is to return the hollows, then you need to do other things as well as the restoration plantings to meet those, to sort of overcome that shortfall in the short, in the immediate future. Yes. Um, now for, for urban areas, it's a, it's a really big issue because obviously mm. urban sprawl, um, you, you're taking out a lot of the native vegetation. So a lot of those um, those big old native trees uh, are being lost. Um, so there's really, really big concern um, across the across the board um, about how about how our urban areas can actually support hollow using species and whether mm. or not they're capable of doing it. Um, and rightly so, uh, because urban ecology as a as a field is so recent, um, we don't really have a, a great understanding of it um, in comparison to a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, remnant, more natural environments. So we have to base our knowledges of those systems, even though urban areas are different. So mm -hmm. my research is trying to overcome those um, 
those gaps in our knowledge uh, and provide managers um, on the ground with steps and criteria and strategies to improve the space that we live in so that wildlife and biodiversity are also benefiting as well. Okay. Okay. So what what does a good red, red rump hollow look like? So that was one of the one of the two big uh, questions that I wanted to ask <laughs> for my research because funnily enough we don't really we didn't really know um red rumps as I said before that they're, they're assumed to be uh, what's called an urban avoider species so they're not really present they don't do they assume to not do very well yes but they're also no one they're also pretty understudied as well there's not yeah. a huge amount in the scientific literature that actually looks at red rumps is that because so, there's plenty of them look potentially um yeah. they're not they're not a species they're not an endangered species so when we've got um you know a, a finite amount of money to spend on conservation. They, they perhaps they've sort of um, slid under the radar a little bit. Mm. Um, there could be a whole range of different reasons reasons why we've got this knowledge gap, but this knowledge gap exists. Mm. Um, so I originally was hoping to go out and actually survey and find all of the red rump hollows in Melbourne and measure them and get all of this data and COVID happened and I couldn't do that. Um, And so we had to very quickly pivot and change tactics. Uh, And so we came up with this idea of creating a citizen science project to help me collect the data for me. So I called it Red Rumpfury, because we were doing it in February. Oh, Red Red Rumpfury. Red Rumpfury. I stand by that name. Uh, I love it. (laughs) And basically it was a a digital survey that um, members of the general public, no matter what their experience or background knowledge when it comes to science was, they could submit a sighting that they had of a red rump parrot interacting or using hollow. Um, and I ran this, uh, this project for, for two months, as it turned out, uh, the February and March of this year. Mm. Uh, and out of the f- 50 records of red rump hollows that I got, 40, 43 of which were citizen scientists. The rest I sort of trolled through social media and found pictures and, that I could actually identify of, of red rump parrots using hollows. Um, we got some really, really cool data and it was actually really exciting. So the big things that came out of it was there's actually a huge amount of diversity that mm. uh, of hollows that red rumps will actually use. Um, surprisingly, a lot of those are actually non-native trees, so which isn't really talked about in the scientific literature uh, yeah, in okay. Australia, at least. Um, but if you think about um, one of the big differences between an urban area or even an urban forest and a native forest is this really high abundance of non-native trees. If you think, uh, if your listeners are in Melbourne, like I am, Melbourne is really famous for you know it's english elms and it's plane trees and oaks and all of mm. those deciduous broad-leafed trees mm. 
they actually all produce hollows and are known to produce hollows in their native distributions, but we don't really know what the value is for Australia. Mm. Um, and it turns out that red rumps are more than happy to to use them in areas, in, particularly in urban areas. So there's there's a chance that these non-native trees are actually helping our cities to cope with the loss of the old native trees, mm. which is really, really important for urban conservation. Um, because normally if we, we say, oh, there's no, there's no big old native trees, so we need to start putting in nest boxes and um, chainsaw hollows and doing all of this really costly and labour-intensive um, hollow, artificial hollow interventions, when there might actually be suitable numbers of hollows in non-native trees that we just, for whatever reason, haven't considered or they haven't been picked up um, on our uh, biodiversity surveys uh, as well, as thoroughly as the hollows in more native vegetation. Mm. Um, and so there's these really important implications for, for hollow conservation and the conservation of hollow using species in urban areas. Um, if we can get a better understanding of exactly how many hollows are in the landscape. And after my research, it, there's a good chance that if you've got these large numbers of old non-native trees, you might actually be better off in terms of the hollow uh, distribution in the landscape than perhaps um, if you didn't have anything. Mm. So do, do non-natives produce hollows earlier and at a younger age? Unfortunately, I don't know. Um, I okay. couldn't find... There was no mention in the literature uh, that I could find. I searched for it. Um, yeah. yeah, short answer is we don't know. Uh, like I said, hollow formation is in in Australia is largely driven by random chance. Um, so, y y you know, y the tree has to generally you'll get, you, you know, a limb drop from, from stress and that yes. is where the hollow will form. Um, mm. Uh, otherwise, we're we're running on you know insects and and fungi. Um, mm. So it's it is possible that there is variations in how quickly the hollows will form in comparison to native species, mm. but we don't really know that um, as of yet. Uh, I think the big key would probably be that. Because um, obviously we still want to be making sure that we're we're planting native species. Because in the yes. long run, that's absolutely going to be critical. Yes. Um, but it's hard to it's hard to preserve what's native, the native vegetation and the native habitat structures in areas where those don't exist. Mm. So I think it's there that it's going to be really important because mm. in those in those inner city suburbs where there isn't really any native vegetation there's no mm. big old gum trees but there are some old elms that were planted way back day dot um, way back when everybody wanted an english cottage garden precisely precisely <laughs> um, a little bit of a home with them yeah yes. absolutely <laughs> and they've i've actually come across um so i was, I was doing surveys through a lot of the parks in in melbourne there were there were actually english elms that had six plus hollows just in a single tree wow um, 
Yeah. So that yeah. would be so that would mean then that you've got a tree that's potentially let's say two hundred years old. Mm. Let's say it was planted like really, really early. It's managed to to develop six hollows in that two hundred years. So I'm intre- I'm I'm wondering if there's I'm wondering if you were to look and I'm sure you did and please tell me to shut up if I'm completely wrong. <laughs> um when it comes to the hollow the hollows research of the you know the the northern hemisphere of the english and the elms and the oaks and things like that what well, there wasn't any research done in the uk about those sorts of those sorts yes. of things okay yes no there there were so when i was when i was moving through the literature um there were absolutely um hollow studies that were done in in europe and in north america um with those assemblages of of, of plants and species, mm. tree species. Um, I think the, the big thing is that it's difficult to, it's difficult to make uh, connections to the, the specific drivers of what is happening within the ecosystem when you're comparing mm. two very different systems. I think um, you yeah, can so definitely... the wild, so the the weather, the wildlife, the bird life, exactly. the insect life, all be completely different. Yeah, so yeah, it's, of course, it's difficult to make. Like, yes, these trees might be um, might have this function in this particular situation in somewhere like England, but it may not necessarily be transferable to mm. to Australia. Um, but we we genuinely just don't really know this we know yeah, the no, trees that will produce hollows naturally in their native distributions but we don't know how well they produce hollows or how um how wildlife can use the hollows in australia until well really now yeah. um, which is what makes which is why i am so excited about the the results that we've gotten that it's yeah. it's it's really reassuring um mm. in a way Mm. So there's a wide so there's a wide a wide array of birds and native species native mammals that use um, use hollows. Mm. What else uses hollows? Oh, so a lot of the birds that you would probably be used to seeing um, will use hollows. Things like rainbow lorikeets uh, uh, use hollows. All of your Pretty much all of your parrots in Australia use hollows. Um, and then you've got things like a lot of owls, so powerful owls, uh, another big hollow user. Um, uh, you've got most of your possums and gliders. Uh, a lot of mammals will that'll live in trees will um, will use hollows but then you've also got introduced species as well so things like uh common miners um and european honeybees they will also also use hollows and it's it is a pretty big issue for a lot of um hollow management programs is actually making sure that the natural and also the artificial hollows so nest boxes and um nest boxes and chainsaw hollows aren't just being overtaken um, by all of these introduced species because then it doesn't really matter if you add, it doesn't matter if you add all of these extra hollows mm. in a landscape where there's not enough if they're just going to be overtaken. Um, and that kind of leads into the second half of my research, um, which sort of said, well, okay, if, if 
you have a landscape, an urban landscape where there are these hollows um, in non-native trees and the red rumps are still not really there, mm. what else could be going on? So in those sorts of situations, you might have, um, it might actually be the broader habitat that is more suitable for interventions than simply just throwing some more hollows in. Um, so that's where I, I went through 20, 20 parks. 20, I had 25 sites across 20 parks and I was actually surveying for birds and I got a bunch of environmental data and I compared, you know, what what made, what the, for the parks that had red runs, what was important for dictating whether or not there were red runs there? Mm-hmm. And for the parks where there weren't red runs, why weren't there red rumps there? Mm. Um, and there were some really, really clear um, messages that, that came out of that. Uh, and the the structure of the habitat in the park that the red rumps were was really, really important. Mm. So red rumps in, uh, well, sorry, parks that were just, you know, open with just a couple of canopy trees, very little... Um, or smaller canopy coverage didn't tend to have as much red runs. They're too open. There's the mm. too big a risk. Um, but it was the parks that actually had a decent amount of coverage. They were the ones that were more likely. Um, and that was both coverage of exotic plants and also native plants. So right. to combat these um, uh, these non-native species that might be sort of monopolizing the hollows that are there, we can also look at other broader habitat interventions um, to better, perhaps not discourage, but provide uh, all of the the resources that the the species we want to see need. Mm. So if if a if an environment has enough hollows, whether it be in native mm. or introduced species, what can we do um, as you know? just members of the public and those citizen mm. scientists, um, what can we do to support red rumps? And mm. the other question, I suppose, that comes from this as well is, what's the distribution of red rumps? I mean, is it the whole of the East Coast? Is it the whole of Australia? I mean, what sort of area do they cover? That's probably a good starting point. Um, so <laughs> red rumps, are, they do have a pretty wide distribution. It's, it is in the southeast of Australia. So Parts of South Australia, um, all the way to southern Queensland, including most of New South Wales, the ACT, and Victoria. Um, They are, they do have specific habitat requirements. So you may not necessarily find them in every habitat throughout that distribution. So normally you would find them in areas that are, you know, open woodlands or access to, to, access to open woodland for breeding, but they also like those open or semi-open grassy areas because that's their main foraging habitat. Mm. Um, And you'll often find them along waterways in what we call riparian zones, which is the vegetation along the bank. Um, So they tend to stick to these these specific habitat types. Um, But in terms of what we can do, this is where it's, it's really important to be smart about how we are structuring our the our urban green spaces so we know that in in more natural settings red rumps are doing fine 
We don't mm. really need to worry. It's still important to keep an eye on them um, yep. for the future, but their, their populations are stable, which is really, really good. But in urban areas, they're still not really performing brilliantly. Mm. Um, there is still a little bit of research to be done with this. Um, unfortunately, because the bulk of my, because of COVID again, um, Good old COVID. I, I, I had to miss the main breeding season, which is uh, winter through till end of winter through till um, sort of late spring, early summer. So okay. there might've been some, there might've been some sites that had red rums and I missed them or, or didn't. Um, so I still need to, we still need to gather a little bit more information about this. Um, but one of the clear things is we, the best opportunities that we have for improving, um, improving the habitat for red rums is to improve the diversity and structure of vegetation in our green spaces. Um, and when I say green space, this could be pretty much any patch of green, really. Um, so somebody's front lawn, somebody's back lawn. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Um, birds are birds are very mobile species, obviously. They fly. Mm. Um, so it's it's really important to have um lots of habitats spread across the landscape. Um, you don't necessarily need to have everything that they need in this one particular spot um, as like mm. this island. Um, what we're finding is that it's actually more important to have all of these, even if they're a little bit smaller, all of these connected patches throughout the landscape. That was one mm. of the big things that was sticking out in, in my results was that the parks that had red rumps had large numbers of parks around them compared to the parks that didn't have red rums. So improving the, yeah. the connectivity between the parks um, and the amount of habitat that's available is really, really important. Now, mm. it's obviously difficult to, for um, a regular citizen to do that in, in a council <laughs> park, but, you know, people's backyards could potentially be really important. Well, Even I've, if it's... I've, yeah. I've discovered, I, I discovered, I, I moved into a new house um, in April last year and it had a pond and it was a really dodgy pond. And one of the first yeah. things I did was I rebuilt the pond. Yes. And I made, there was a, like a waterfall, a water feature that was just basically this fiberglass thing that was just plonked on a brick and it just kind of spewed like Niagara Falls into the pond. Yeah. But I made it into like what I called the babbling brook. So I put it further back and I, put rocks underneath it so yeah. it kind of flows down and it's not such a rushing torrent. Mm. And what I noticed was that in the sort of the the three or four months before I actually built the pond, virtually no birds in my garden at all. Mm -hmm. And then within the three or four months after redoing the pond, I now regularly get carawongs, crows, mm -hmm. magpies, silver eyes, rosalas, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. the little the little crested doves, yep. everything. And they all seem to have their time yeah. that they're allowed to spend yeah. at the at the babbling brook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and nobody nobody's ever there at the same time. Like the crows aren't there when the magpies are there and the magpies aren't there when the rosalas are there. So it's really interesting to just watch. So this is just a pond that's probably only about maybe three square meters at the most mm -hmm. with this little Waterfall, little waterfall feature, and in summer, lots of like greenery and 
you know, plants and stuff around it. But it's interesting for me to just watch how suddenly it went from being the magpies only to all these other birds just coming through at their sort of like allotted, you know, allotted docking time. Yeah, yeah. And look, that's a really great example of how simple it can be to to make adjustments to a space to improve how beneficial it can be for for biodiversity we it's it's not necessarily about um you know having all of this pristine land dedicated to conservation in it's national in a in a big national park that's obviously really important but it's not feasible in in an urban area um the goal is of urban conservation isn't to return um the landscape back to uh, this state of pristine i'm going to say wilderness in mm. in air quotes here um because it's just not feasible but mm. making these little these small adjustments um to the spaces that we share can make sure that we are still um, benefiting from from the green space because we know that green space is really important for for human well-being. Mm. Um, So it's important that we maintain access and we can still use those spaces. Um, But it's also really important that we make sure that the wildlife and the biodiversity can still benefit from them as well. So that's a really actually fantastic example of one, how you can do that, but also how important urban spaces is. Mm. Um, and it's it's something that's still sort of oh, it's it's not a lot of people are shocked by how much diversity there mm. are in these in urban spaces. Um and I think it really comes down to this, you know, conception of what what a cons- an area that's good for conservation is supposed to look like. Um, mm. It doesn't have to. Nature isn't, you know, over there in in just in the national parks, and we have to travel to visit us. Um, urban areas are actually really important as well. And you mentioned swift parrots. Mm. Um, swift parrots might migrate every year from t- between Tasmania and the mainland. Um, urban areas are actually really, really important um, habitats, foraging habitats for uh, pretty pretty threatened species. Um, mm. Here in Melbourne, we've also got the gangangs coming yep. down to feed. They've just been listed as endangered, unfortunately. Yeah, we um, see quite a lot of those in the... Um... Oh, over summer we get a lot of those in the yeah. in the botanical gardens and the oh, and the arboretum and they're, yeah. they're one of my favourites. I'm I must admit. Um, and there's actually, believe it or not, in threatened species that are only found in urban areas. There's a couple of species of orchids. That the one is the sunshine diurus, only found in um, in a suburb in some suburbs around Melbourne. So wow. the only opportunities for for conservation for this species is in urban areas. Yes. So it just goes to show exactly how much, how important urban spaces can be and how much value um, they can have for conservation. Mm. Mm. So talking about urban areas and, you know, because um, and I know we could talk about this for ages and ages and ages, but I'm <laughs> aware about it. I'm, 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 I'm also really, really conscious about keeping the podcast under an hour. Um, yes. So um, <laughs> even if it just scrapes in at 59 minutes. Um, so... 
Talking about urban spaces, obviously in in Canberra, we're, we're, we've got a lot of development happening at the moment. And when the new, because we're very suburban based, so we have these sort of like these few town centres that, that that we have. So we've got Civic and Tuggeranong, and then we've got uh, Woden and Gungalan and Belconnen, and these are our real ma- major sort of like town centres within the ACT. Mm. When we're building up these new suburban, um, new suburb, new suburbias, <laughs> which is pretty much what the ACT is made up of. Yeah. Um, the new sub, the new suburbs are now cat containment areas, which yeah. is, you know, around if you have a cat, it must be kept in. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they've actually recently done as of today, the 1st of July, um, all cats from now must be contained. So mm-hmm. any any animal registered from today must mm-hmm. be must be contained. Um either in the house or within like a, you know, a deck sort of space. Yeah, absolutely. Now, obviously, you know, conservationists, wildlife lovers, all those sorts of things, we, you know, we we, we don't want them going off and killing and, you know, doing all those Mm. things. How do you feel that when, when we're sort of putting these spaces together, these new spaces that are generally, you know, quite sort of naked for some time mm. after they've first been developed. How do you think having these the, 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 these rules around cat containment are are they are they are they how are they going to impact how things grow and develop? Mm. So I am I'm definitely in support of of the of the measures. It, the science is is there. To, to show the sorts of impact that um, that our cats could potentially be having on wildlife. I think um, particularly for the newer suburbs, uh, there's already so much potential stress that can um, that can happen uh, in, in an urban space. You know, you've got light, noise and hard surfaces. So there's definitely, it, it's sort of just this extra, taking away this extra stress, mm. um, which is really, really important. But I think the conversation around responsible pet ownership, um, it does tend to stop at, at cats. Um, and yes, you can absolutely, there's absolutely a big case as to why that is, but you know, there's, um, dogs can definitely, uh, pose a risk to to the health of wildlife as well even things like horses um have been known to to pose a threat uh and even you know the how hygienic we keep our um our chicken coops um can also impact uh the native species so i think this idea of responsible pet ownership really needs to be extended um, to be a lot more inclusive. Uh, ultimately, we're the ones bringing these animals into the space. Mm. Um, and so we need to be responsible to make sure that the pet, our beloved pets, and I am a pet owner, um, Me too. aren't having these negative impacts on our lovely wildlife. Um, mm. And it's also um, for for the benefit of, of our pets as well. I've, I've unfortunately been through an instance of uh, a collision with one of my pets and it's pretty traumatic. Mm. I, I don't wish it on anyone. Mm. Um, and I would argue it's also for the, in the interests of our pets to keep them in enclosed mm. areas. Um, but yes, it is, 
it's a very emotionally charged space and mm. um, topic. And I don't pretend to be an expert on how the different legislations in the different areas can is going to be implemented and how that will impact on the success mm. of the programs and also how um, how equitable the the enforcement is going to be amongst the community members. I, I genuinely don't know enough about the topic to mm. comment on that, but I think we we really need to um, to take a step back and and investigate how we're going about or what our attitudes are around pet ownership in general and mm. how we can how we can make sure that yeah make sure that we're if we do make the decision to have pets that we're behaving in a way that doesn't mean our wildlife have to suffer okay so pretend for a moment I've decided I don't have pets at all but I'm going to feed the birds because they're all in my garden and aren't they lovely Um, (laughs) yes what happens then You've hit another emotionally charged set of <laughs> urban conservation. <laughs> the controversy, I like it. So I asked the hard questions. Just call me Lee Sales. Yeah. <laughs> She's no, retired. I could do yeah. her job. <laughs> this is also a conversation that needs to be had. Now, I was um, very heavily. So I did my undergraduate degree at Griffith University in Brisbane. Mm. And um, Professor Daryl Jones was a very big influence on me as an ecologist. Um, And he's actually written some books about this. Uh, And it actually looks at this concept of bird feeding and, you know, the pros and cons and and addresses the situation in a really, really... um, really good way and I would invite any of your listeners who are interested in this um, to to do it. I will admit freely that I have fed birds in the past. Mm. Um, What I will say is that there is evidence that suggests that um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna (laughs) in the words of Daryl Jones um, (laughs) the food that a bird will get at um at a feeding station is usually the equivalent or should be the equivalent of a cup of tea and a biscuit. Yep. It's not going to be the entire diet. And we rightfully so we, we, there is definitely some concerns that um, if we feed the birds too much, we're training them away from their natural instincts and away from their natural food resources. And there's a whole range of, um, of ethical and um, ecological uh, dilemmas that that opens up. Mm. Um, thankfully, the, the, the research is showing that that's not the case. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of one study that was done in, I, I think it was around Brisbane on, I can't remember if it was magpies or butcher birds. Um, and it found that although the parents were bringing their offspring to the the feeding stations, they were still actively, most of the diet was still natural foraging and they were still teaching their young to forage. So I think what, if anyone is worried that um, 
feeding birds is going to drastically change their behavior. Thankfully, it doesn't seem to be the case, Mm. but it doesn't necessarily mean the act is devoid of all potential consequences. So one of the big potential problems that can arise from bird feeding is, um, is diseases. Mm. Um, so we've got a lot of birds congregating in the one place. They're sharing the same food. Um, it is prime, uh, opportunities for, for, for pests and diseases and, um, uh, and other little nasties to, to be transferred from one bird to another, particularly when we've got exotic species. Um, so, the big thing is going to be making sure that if you do decide to feed the birds, which most of Australians, although it's interestingly enough, although we know we're not, we're not supposed to, (laughs) we still do. Yes. If you're going to make that decision. We're not, we're not supposed to speed either, but most of us do. (laughs) Oh, I don't think we've got enough time for that. (laughs) Maybe that's Um, episode two. Yeah. Maybe. Um, if we're going to make this, make the decision to do it, we need to make sure where you need to make sure it's hygienic, you're cleaning it. Um, and you're also providing nutritious uh, food that's nutritious. Mm. Um, so it's, it's definitely, um, it's, yeah, it's definitely a very charged conversation. Mm. Uh, personally, so long as it is done correctly and, um, with the minds taking into consideration the welfare of the animals, mm. the science um, is showing that it's potentially not as alarming mm. as we might have thought. It's funny you mentioned that the, the you know the cup of tea and a biscuit. My 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 grandmother used to say that because she used to feed the birds, <laughs> and she had a rule. She would she would only she would only put food out once a week. Yeah. And she would spread. She didn't. She didn't have a feeder. She would throw the seed on her lawn in a great big swathe of you know. She'd get. She'd. She'd basically fill up a mug with seed, and she would just sort of spray it across this great big arc. So it mm. was really spread out in her across the lawn. Um, and because I'd I'd always you know my other grandmother had it. You know, had the little had the little wooden house with the little deck and yeah. the you know the mold yeah. and the, yeah. <laughs> and, the yeah. and the moss and all that stuff. Love and it. yeah, it was it was just a typical little bird feeder that would have appeared on a Christmas card covered in snow and a red robin. It was yes. it, that was one grandmother, yeah. and the other grandmother was this very sort of big big swathe of seed once a week. And I remember asking, you know, why do you do it like that? And why do you do it like that? And it's like, well, because that's how my mum taught me and that's how my mum taught me. And, and it was always my grandmother with the book. She says, well, you know, it's she says, I'm just inviting the birds round for a cup of tea and a biscuit once a week. <laughs> and it, it, that's all. It's always stuck with me, yeah. and that's and that's how I feed the birds. Mm. Uh, which, of course, I'm just keep thinking Mary Poppins whenever I hear the phrase "feed the birds." Um, You're not alone in that, so do I. No. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's how that's how I do it. I I literally I get I've got a little I've got a little cup. Um, it's only about this. It's only mm-hmm. about maybe an inch and a half, two inches tall, and I put some like a mixture of seeds in it with some millet and things like that, and I just spray across my front lawn Mm. and I do that about once a week Mm. and so the the birds come down and they and funnily enough they all naturally socially distance when they're eating yeah it's 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 funny how they um they do that often it's um 
sometimes you'll get, you know, breakages in, in, in feeding guilds. So, you know, for, for something like a red rump parrot, you'll often, you, you yeah. will find them feeding with, with other, with other seed eating birds yes. um, of the same. Have you noticed that they're roughly the same sort of size? Yes. Yeah. 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 So you, that, if, if the, if, 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 if a crow comes down or a magpie comes down, everybody else just, they all just disappear. Yes. They all disappear yeah. up into the trees and then they wait. And then that one's, when that one's kind of come down and gone, oh, there's nothing here that's of any interest and they fly away. And then they, they wait for a bit and then they come back. Yeah. So that's, um, that's a good example of communal feeding. Um, so yeah. you'll get these communal flocks where obviously it, it's, it's safety in numbers mm. is what it is. So you'll have, even though there might be slightly different species, they there would have to be some sort of recognition that they are not a threat to one another. Mm. Um, and so, but each bird is going to be keeping an eye out, an eye on, sorry, the the other individuals. And mm. once once one of them, usually particularly one of the ones on the outside of, of the group, sees something that's alarming, that mm. message is quickly going to be transmitted. Um, or that, sorry, that response is mm. quickly going to be transmitted throughout the rest of the flock mm. because each bird is keeping an eye on a certain number of the ones in front of yes. them. Yes. Um, so and off yeah, they that's, go. Mm. Yes, and and off they go back to mm. safety. Yeah, absolutely. It's. Um, I must admit, I do. I do enjoy. Um, I because of my the way my new house is set up or my new. I've been there for. I've been there eighteen months now, but I still call it my new house. Um, there's a there's a deck out the front, so there's no mm. lawn at the back, but there's lawn at the front. And I've set up a desk and a chair and a you know a plant, and I call it my little Ernest Ernest Hemingway desk, so I can sit out there on the deck. And <laughs> um, it's obviously not warm enough <laughs> in Canberra to be doing that right now. But in summer, Next come summer, it's in summer, it's it will be wonderful. But it's great because I can sit out there and I can you know I can be writing and I can be working and I can mm. and I can be sitting there and the birds just come down they completely ignore me now because I'm obviously mm. not a threat and the dog's yeah. sitting there and she's not a threat she doesn't she doesn't care so it's really quite wonderful to be in suburbia full on suburbia but I do have so much I do have so much bird life mm. and you know I've really um I did contemplate in the summer getting some bees, some 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 European mm -hmm. honeybees in a hive, mm -hmm. but then I decided no. So mm -hmm. next next summer my plan is to get the little stingless bees for, oh, I for love the, stingless for the, bees. For the pollination so of my of my little natives. Yeah. <laughs> another yeah. um another great uh option for you if you're wanting to improve your bi how biodiversity friendly your garden is is actually yes. to look at uh, insect hotels. Um, yes. to attract a lot of other a lot of other um, animals uh, animals to them, so that that can be another really easy way. You just sort of sit it there, and you don't need to do anything well, to it. I I heard I heard, and please correct me if I'm wrong, and you 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 may or may not know the answer to this, but excuse me, a lot of the insect hotels that you can buy are actually made out of the wrong material, or they have things in them that aren't great. So, what mm. do you know the best way to make an in insect hotel? Oh, look, there's there's going to be so many different, um, I'm going to say recipes for lack of a better word. Um, I don't know if there's going to be a right way to make them, yeah. to be perfectly honest. You do need to be aware of, um, again, uh, like the bird feeding, you've got to be aware of hygiene mm. and, and making sure that the materials that you use are not going to be... Uh, or going to limit any potential transfer of 
of nasties and um, uh, parasites and things like that. So it's probably more of a problem if you were to, you know, build an entire wall worth of an insect hotel. A little, a little, a little one is not really going to make much difference. So if you go, so if you go along to your local log store and buy yeah. a great big, go, buy a round of, buy a round of, you know, gum, gum, and then just drill a whole load of holes in it. Is that going to be good enough to be an insect hotel? The big thing is going to be making sure that it's not being treated with anything. Um, well, yes. Well, that's why I yeah. say go to your local log store yes. because yeah. if you're going to burn it, it doesn't have anything on it. My, okay. yeah, my okay. advice would be to, if you're going to make your own, try and experiment with different kinds of logs and wood of different densities. Because, um, yeah. you know, insects are different from one another so they some will have different some might nest in harder wood some may not necessarily be able to burrow into it as well or might prefer something else so um try try a bunch of different things um and you may uh, and remember it's also to, to do with the position as well so that can have a big impact on it. So make sure it's not in you know blaring sun. Um but I would difficult in my garden. Yes definitely difficult in some people's garden and that's where it's you know you, you've got to work with the space that you've got obviously mm. Mm. Um, but every little bit every little bit helps and okay. you never know if it could even be something as simple as just leaving a log in your garden that's what I was that, that's that's what I was yeah. just thinking I was just thinking yeah. I might go and you know grab some of the old logs that have fallen down in the local parks to come in yeah. stick them in my yeah. stick them on my, on my garden beds drill some holes yeah. underneath so they can get in and then just leave them yeah and even if they're not yeah. even if you don't attract like a uh, um, a burrowing bee. You, even if that isn't what is coming and using the the log or that that habitat, um, then it's still going to be beneficial habitat for something else that you may not yeah. necessarily have considered. Um, and, and that's a really really important point for 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 any sort of um, conservation. Um, you might have these what we would call it a target species. Um, uh, or even a flagship species is a really, really popular term um, mm. in, in conservation work at the moment, um, uh, where basically you've got this, you, you have a, a species or, that you want to attract um, and you do things to to improve the habitat to attract mm. that species. Um, and But that species is not going to be the only thing that benefits from that view. Mm everything else that shares that space is going to is going to benefit um and if if i if i use the red rums as another uh, as an example again um what we were trying to do with the red rums is essentially put them forward and say this is a really great flagship species like let's if we promote the red rums you know they they meet the criteria they're nice and cute and cuddly and they're pretty (laughs) and colorful and sweet um which is what most flagship species are um and if we Prove the habitat of the, for red rums. Yes, we're focusing on one species, but all of these other species are going to benefit. And things like yeah. the rosellas and the the king parrots, and and also your insects, and um, probably a whole range of other of other animals um, are going to benefit. So mm. really, it doesn't matter what. I would argue that it doesn't matter what scale you're working on, whether or not you are a biodiversity manager in an urban park and you've got this lovely big area of open space to work with or you've got a little courtyard or even a balcony and all you've got is a few pot plants you can still make 
you can still introduce elements to that space that can improve the habitat for biodiversity. Brilliant. Thank you so much. What a wonderful way to, to end this conversation today. Thank you so much. No, not a problem, Francis. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to my guest, Rob. I never knew birds with red bottoms could be so much fun. I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Nick for putting this together. I'd like to thank everybody who supports Wild Talk on Facebook and Instagram and who uses our services to support their mental health and well-being. Until next time, goodbye.